Let's go ahead and pause for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can worship you. In spirit and in truth, we desire to worship you. Now, Father, as we prepare to hear your word, will you please speak through my all too imperfect and feeble lips to bring clarity, to bring knowledge, and ultimately to bring life by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if uh, we could dismiss our kids' sprouts age for their own lesson, you can meet your uh, teacher in the back of the hallway there with palms in hand. And as they're dismissing, uh, let me just go ahead and uh, introduce what's happening today. Over the last number of weeks, uh, we've been looking at the various stages in Christ's humiliation. Uh, We began with a discussion of his trial before Pontius Pilate uh, moved to his crucifixion and eventually last week his his death. And today, of course, we're going to be talking about his burial Yes, this is Palm Sunday, but we're talking specifically, we're focusing on Jesus' burial as we then enter into Holy Week this week. And to help us do that, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in, um, well, that is not usually associated with the burial of Christ. That certainly uh, would be the case. It's a very famous psalm, maybe the most famous psalm that's ever been written, Psalm 23. And again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine that most of us actually associate it with the burial, but I hope to show you today that it makes perfect sense. So with that being said, let's, let's hear what Psalm 23 has to say to us today. Quote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. End of reading. So I... I mean, there, there is nothing for us human beings that feels more final, and in fact, that is more final than the grave. Uh, whether it be being buried six feet under, or being interred in ashes, or in the case of Jesus, being brought into a tomb and having a gigantic stone rolled in front of the entryway, there's just nothing that speaks to us of finality more than that place. And therefore, it is natural for us to be absolutely terrified by it. As a matter of fact, there is a phobia known as taphophobia that is the fear of being buried alive because we all know that once that happens, there's no escape. There's no coming out. And yet, even though Christ is buried, according to the Gospels, We learn from the Bible there that even in the midst of his burial, he is, in fact, working. That God is not done 
merely at the death of Christ, but that no, God is actually doing something even in that grave, even in that place of stillness, even in that place of finality and terror, God is actively still working. And that psalm really paints the picture for us today because we have to remember that all of Scripture, as Jesus told his disciples at the end of Luke's Gospel, is ultimately pointing to him. And that psalm, Psalm 23, in fact points us to the moment that Jesus enters the grave. And so what do we learn? What do we learn about this story connecting it to the psalm? Well, first of all, we learn, of course, that Jesus was led into the grave. He was led there. Now, this may seem a strange statement considering where we would have last ended last week with a very graphic depiction of Jesus' death. The last thing reported is Jesus being well, basically breathing his last, and yes, literally dying on the cross and then having his body taken down and being taken to the grave by a few sympathetic friends like Joseph of Arimathea or, or Nicodemus. Uh, but really, there's nothing too dramatic about it. It doesn't seem like there's much going on at all. And yet I am here today claiming that even there, God is ultimately leading the way. Indeed, the, the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that Christ's burial was a necessary component to the story of the gospel. The fact is, one of the great reasons to trust the story of his eventual resurrection is the fact that so many people knew where he was buried. Tomb was not anonymous. And when his opponents couldn't account for the tomb being empty three days later, well, they had to circulate a story that his disciples had stolen the body and had hid it somewhere. Of course, some 2,000 years later, we still have not found a corpse, but we do have the account of hundreds of hundreds of people saying that they saw him risen in the body within days of him being placed in the tomb. And so the burial was, was necessary because it shows that Jesus really did actually die on the cross. Sure, throughout history, there's been skeptics that have tried to say, well, no, he, you know, he may have been really gravely injured, but he was able, once he was in the tomb, to kind of swoon back to life and get enough strength that he could leave the tomb. Of course, the, I mean, the problem with that, number one, is that we don't have one bit of evidence to suggest he wasn't dead. And number two... I mean, the stone was, it weighed tons. After going through a crucifixion, it wouldn't be too typical for a man to regain enough strength to roll the stone away. In fact, there was just no way to do it. And so with that in mind, listen to the words again of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, indeed the grave itself, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Jesus knows that even upon entering the grave, that his father will not abandon him, that he will not be left alone that God the Father still has work to do in and through him. And of course, this leads to great comfort. 
The psalmist goes on to say that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, what was a rod and a staff used for by the shepherd? Well, the shepherd basically had those two tools in his arsenal. The rod was used to fend off wolves and other would-be enemies of the flock. And the staff was used to make sure that the flock stayed together, that there wouldn't be any strays, that people or that the sheep would know to stay in line. And as the psalmist reflects, picturing himself as a, as a lamb in the midst of God's flock, he takes comfort in the fact that the shepherd, the father, is providing for him. Even in the midst of the most dire circumstances possible, the father is leading and guiding. He will not be left alone. And the same is true for you. The book of Hebrews says very clearly that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Even if you were to enter the grave, he will be there. When I was uh, growing up, I got in a lot of fights. I wasn't good at them. So really the way I should tell you that story is, when I was growing up, I got beat up a lot. And the reason I typically got beat up a lot is because I had a big mouth and therefore could not defend my big mouth when someone would punch it. But probably the worst fight I got into happened when I was 14 years old, and it wasn't because of my big mouth. Me and two of my friends, Joel and, or, or Jonah, Jonas and Noel, uh, decided that we were going to go out on a Friday night and go see a few good men. That gives you an idea of how long ago this story takes place. And I asked my dad beforehand if he could drop us off like an hour early because, you know, we were 14 and it felt cool to be out just by ourselves. And, and you know, in truth, we also wanted to like, you know, look for ladies. you are 14, you know, just strolling around the movie theater looking for the ladies. Turns out uh, no ladies were attracted to us. And so after a feeble attempt at trying to attract the ladies, we decided we were hungry and we would go over to a little restaurant called Del Taco. If you've ever been to California, you've seen it. It's sort of a California fast food joint. So we walked across the street to Del Taco to get some tacos before the movie started. And right as we got into the parking lot there, suddenly we were surrounded by nine very large men, all dressed in various forms of blue, blue bandanas and blue this and that. And I didn't get it at first, but eventually it became clear to me, oh, here is nine members of the Crip Gang. Now, I, I haven't seen many, many members of the Crip Gang out here in Sakasana. I'm sure they're, they're out there somewhere. Uh, but in the L.A. area, the Crip Gang was known for being, um, what's the word, uh, dangerous, uh, murderous. People that you don't want to have surrounding you in the parking lot at Del Taco when you're 14. Nevertheless, there we were, and it was clear that they had their eyes, their sights set on us. One of them asked my friend Noel a question, something about whether we knew somebody, and before Noel could even answer, one of them reached up and just popped him right in the face, and then suddenly it was on. They all rushed us. I had multiple guys come after me. I panicked. I literally thought this might be the end, because the reputation of the Crip Gang wasn't that they just happened to bruise you up a little bit. And sure enough, they did quite a bit of bruising. They got me down on the floor, and I was being punched all over my body and kicked repeatedly in the kidneys, and I had no ability to defend myself. 
Neither did either one of my friends. I remember seeing one of my friends being lifted up like this and then just thrown straight on his back onto the hard pavement. And eventually, they got bored, I, I guess, of beating the tar out of us, and they took off, and we were bloodied and bruised and battered and in shock and weren't sure what to do. And so I did the only thing I knew to do. I called my dad. And I get on the phone, and I'm sure, I mean, just picturing, I'm a father of two teenage boys now, picturing what it must have sounded like from his perspective. Dad, I just got beat up by nine members of the Crip gang, you know. Like, I'm sure my dad was like, you know, head exploding, all sorts of fear. And so I don't remember hearing the phone actually hang up. I just remember hearing silence on the other end. And then a few minutes later, seeing a big yellow LTD screeching into the parking lot and then parking sideways and my dad ripping out of the car and saying, where are they? And I realized that I had not told my dad that they were gone. And in my dad's mind... He had come ready to fight. He had come ready to do anything necessary to defend his son. And I do have to tell you, it is an immense comfort to know in terrible situations where you may be battered and bruised, beaten to a pulp, it's an immense comfort to know that someone is out there that can defend you. That is the comfort that Christ goes into the grave with, knowing that his Father is leading him there and that his Father will not leave him there. That he will not be forsaken or abandoned there. Dear Christian, you have a Father whose rod and staff is a comfort to you no matter how battered and bruised this last year has left all of us to some degree or another, even if you go to the grave, his comfort will be there. And that leads to perhaps the most significant aspect of the burial of Christ, and that is that he went into the grave victorious. He goes into the grave victorious. Now, if you were to read the gospel accounts of the burial of Jesus, again, the, the whole event seems rather ho-hum. His body is taken down and he's placed in a tomb. And until the resurrection, we really don't hear anything else about it. It's just three days of silence. In the gospel accounts, you don't seem to get any indication that anything is going on in that grave at all. Ah, but if you go on into the epistles, you'll start to see that even there, God is working too. And in specific in Second Peter, we're told that while he was buried, Jesus went down to preach to, quote, the spirits who were in prison. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, Bible scholars for years have puzzled over that. What does it mean that he went and preached to spirits in prison? Well, where are spirits imprisoned? Well, at the very least, the church has sort of had a consensus we confess it in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell, or the place of the dead, or Hades, however you want to say it. And he wouldn't preach there. What does it mean that he preached there? Well, he proclaimed something. What did he proclaim? 
Well, well some, some have said that he went there to suffer more because his work on earth wasn't done to, to atone for sinners. I don't believe that's tenable because it turns out, you know, when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, I think he meant it. He was done. I don't think he had any more atoning to do. Another option put forward by our Eastern Orthodox friends is that when Jesus went down there, he went to go actually redeem people, to take people out of the imprisonment, to take people out of death and already lead them to life. And there is something to that because, again, we, we have language in the New Testament of him when he ascends taking captives with him in the train of his robe. That could be. But at the very least, what we do know, what the church has always agreed upon, is that when Jesus descends down into the realm of the dead, into hell itself, Jesus goes there proclaiming victory. That he has won. There's, I don't want to put it too flippantly, but there's almost a taunting that goes on. That Jesus stands in the face of his worst enemies, of sin, death, and hell, of Satan himself, and says, I have defeated you. Your reign is over. Now keep that in mind when we come to verse 5 of our psalm. Because even if you've read this before, I think that you've probably puzzled at one time or another over this line. It says, you prepare a table before me, where? In the presence of my enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go out on a Friday night and I want to get together with folks, I don't want to get together at the table with a bunch of my foes. That doesn't sound like a grand old jamboree. Let's get together with people that hate me. That sounds great. And so you might read that at first and you go, why? This is why. Because in the presence of his enemies, we're told he's anointed with oil and that his cup overflows. In other words, he's standing there in the presence of his enemies and he is being declared the victor. Uh, the king in the Old Testament would be anointed with oil over their head. The priest would be anointed with oil over their head. There's very high symbolism going on here. There's a declaration being made. He's won. He beat you. So sit there and take it. That's what's going on. And so like the Apostle Paul, we can say, oh death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Like Jesus sitting in the presence of his enemies, we can taunt it even. Christian, on account of Christ's victory, you have been given the victory. In Christ, you are forgiven and reconciled to God and thus have trampled Satan underfoot. Because Christ, as your representative, defeated death, you have defeated death. Because you are connected with him by faith, it is as if you have won the victory. 
let me make this, let me bring this down to brass tacks. I mean, I don't know about some of you, but right now I'm in one of my favorite times of the year. I know you think because I'm a pastor, I'm going to say Holy Week, but no, March Madness. Holy Week's great. I mean, I, all joking aside. But I've been watching the NCAA tournament, you know, with some, some degree of fervor. And, you know, today I'm going to go home after this service. I'm going to get a nice lunch, and then I'm going to watch more of the NCAA tournament. I love it. There's just something about the competition in these games that's different from everything else. But the reality is I don't really have a team this year. I don't have a team that's like my team, you know what I mean? And so I'm watching and I'm enjoying it, but it's not something that, you know, I'm really super passionately invested in. But I have friends who really, really have a team. My good buddy Dan Price lives in northwest Arkansas, right next to the University of Arkansas, and you have never met a bigger fan of the University of Arkansas than Dan Price. Go Hogs! And last night, of course, Arkansas won. Very close game against Oral Roberts University. And there was much celebration to be had. And here's what you'll hear from really big fans of a team if you talk to them about the game afterwards. You'll hear them say things like this. Yeah, man, you know, we were, uh, we were really struggling with defense in the first half there, but we picked it up. Yeah, man, you know, about halfway through the, the, the second half, I mean, our offense really, really got going. And then, of course, when the victory actually happens, we won! Now, my friend Dan was not on the court last night with Arkansas. In fact, he was sitting on a couch with some chips and dip, watching Arkansas get the victory. And yet, there is this sense, as this team represents your home, represents your area, that you feel that you're a, that you're a part of it. So much so that it's very natural. We don't even blink an eye when we hear, we won, we played good defense, our offense really shined because we identify with them. It's as if they are doing it on our behalf. This is what Jesus has done for you at the grave. So that when Jesus comes out of the grave triumphant, you can say, I will come out of the grave triumphant. So that when Jesus taunts sin, death, and hell, you can taunt sin, death, and hell. It is his victory that is your victory. He does not go a victim, but a victor. And so will you. A good friend of mine and a mentor named Rod Rosenblatt has summarized the Christian faith this way. Ultimately, it's about preparing you to die. And really, when you think about it, it is. The Christian church has insisted and will insist again with flying colors next Sunday that the very heart and soul of the universe is resurrection, is the hope that no matter what comes here, that the grave has been overcome. In Christ, I proclaim to you, I insist on it, 
The grave has been defeated. You have new life. You need not fear. Because your good shepherd is with you. And he's not just with you. He's powerful enough to raise you. And so it is completely understandable to me, even as the psalmist goes through the valley of the shadow of death, the ultimate finality that he could confidently declare in verse 6, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May his words be your words and be my words on account of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we have had endless reminders, far too many reminders over this last year of the various ways in which death is creeping around the corner. Whether it's news of rising cases or family members hospitalized, whether it's rumors of war or economic collapse. Ugh, it's exhausting. It's easy to get overwhelmed. And so it is good for us to see once again that even in the most dire of circumstances that on account of what Jesus has done for us we can confidently declare surely we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Make that the very center of our hope. We ask in Jesus' name, who taught us to pray with one voice, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.